Welcome to From What If to What Next, part podcast, part parallel universe, part fresh take on the world around you, part warm bath of possibilities for you to relax into, smelling faintly of cedar, candy floss and watercolour paints. I'm Rob Hopkins and I'm your host. If you're joining us for the first time, you're most welcome. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com from what if to what next. It's what enables us to keep doing this. Thank you. And if you're a regular listener, hi, how's your week been? Good to see you again. So, to today's episode. Peter Gray, one of the great researchers and writers on the importance of play, once wrote, The drive to play freely is a basic biological drive. Lack of free play may not kill the physical body, as would lack of food, air or water, but it kills the spirit and stunts mental growth. Nothing we do, no amount of toys we buy or quality time or special training we give our children can compensate for the freedom we take away. The things that children learn through their own initiatives in free play cannot be taught in other ways. Play is declining in our culture, driven indoors by cars and fears of stranger danger, becoming something increasingly mediated through a screen and designed out of many kids' school experience. Play is in danger. As a result, we're seeing huge rises in levels of anxiety, depression and stress in young people. Yet play is fundamental to our well-being. The former mayor of Bogota once argued that the number of children playing in the street of a city should be seen as one of its key well-being indicators. Play is when we can let our guard down, take risks, connect to other people, let our imaginations off their leash, put our minds into yes and rather than yes but. I would argue very strongly that play is in fact vital for all of us. It's when we feel most alive it should underpin our activism, our politics, our city planning, our economics, our education system, everything. It should be the air we breathe, a fundamental backbone to how we do things and to what we do. And so, in today's episode of From What If To What Next, we're asking, what if we took play seriously? I'm joined to discuss this today by two of the most playful people around. Ben Towell is a play consultant and researcher, working together with his colleague Mike Barclay as Ludicology. They have over 40 years' experience of working with and on behalf of playing children. Their work includes play sufficiency assessments, research and action planning with municipalities and national organisations, consultancy on neighbourhood regeneration, developing evidence-based design recommendations and working with schools and arts and cultural organisations to develop playful practices. The focus of their work is improving adults' responsibilities towards children's right to play through assessing the sufficiency of opportunity to play and the development and maintenance of systems, partnerships and interventions that take account of and pay attention to children's play needs. Ash Perrin, also known as Bash, is the founder and CEO of the Flying Seagull Project, a UK-based charity that works around the world to bring happiness to children who are marginalised or suffering. In 2007, Ash found himself playing guitar and doing some magic in an orphanage in Cambodia. He noticed that the children were comfortable and happy, but also understood that these were feelings they didn't usually experience. 
Ash realised that as an entertainer and as a clown who cares passionately about the health and happiness of children, he should do as much as possible to spread love, light and laughter to those who need it most. He wrote the idea for the Flying Seagull project on a piece of paper that night and launched it three months later. Since then, the Flying Seagull project, a small, highly skilled team of around 20 professional entertainers, has used music, arts, dance and clowning to spread smiles to more than 140,000 children in hospitals, orphanages and refugee camps around the world. Ash and the Seagulls have witnessed incredible transformations, the burdens of premature adulthood lifted, children unable to engage becoming vocal, popular members of the group, frowns, fear and anxiety replaced by positivity and confidence. Since 2015, the Flying Seagull Project has focused on providing emergency relief for child refugees in Europe and the Middle East, as well as continuing their work with excluded and disadvantaged communities in the UK and across Europe. And if you haven't yet seen his talk at TEDx Jacksonville, you really, really should. It reduced pretty much the entire living room in my house to tears. Welcome both. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Rob. Hi, Ash. Hey, how's it going? So uh, I'd like to start with the way we usually start this podcast. And I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and to imagine that you are stepping out of 2020 and travelling through time to 2030. The 10 years that you pass through are a time of the most remarkable and deep transformation. Institutions that previously felt permanent faded away and were replaced by new ones and positive change built in cascades. The 2030 you step out into, while in many ways looks similar to 2020, is in other ways profoundly changed. It's zero carbon, more local, more resilient world that is fairer, more equal, more time rich, more connected, more at peace and more playful. Play now runs through all aspects of society. The work you were doing in 2020 bore fruit. Congratulations. And by 2030 is the new normal. Can you take us on a walk through that world, through a day in the life of that future? What does it look like, feel like, sound like and taste like to you? Ash? Um, well, I mean, what a wonderful possibility. <laughs> Firstly, I think I might keep my eyes shut for the rest of the day and live in this place. <laughs> I think the biggest change that, that is from the moment you step out the door, the feeling of tension, pressure and competitiveness has vanquished into a sense of, of unanimous desire to enjoy life. Because that's essentially, I guess, what, what play does, isn't it? We don't play a game hoping we'll suffer. You know, we play the game for fun, which means that as you walk around the streets, you'll find more people doing the thing that they choose and want to do, which means from coffee shops to car mechanics to, you know, all the elements that, that we expect to find in a functioning world are done by people who want to do them in the hours that they choose to work because output is no longer the focus, but rather experience. And actually, when given the opportunity to do something you love, and I'm sure that all of you guys and everyone listening knows this, the moment you do something you love, you have so much more energy and determination and clarity and strength than you could have ever possibly imagined. Now, rolled out where, into a world where play or, or the focus on, on enjoyment is, uh, is key, many of us will be doing, or we'll be thriving in our communities, we'll be thriving in our professions. So everywhere you look, everything's a bit cleaner, everything's a bit more beautifully decorated, everything's more mindfully handled. When you walk past people in the street, People look at you in the eye. You've got to look someone in the eye if you're sharing a game with each other. Obviously, unless it's Wink Murder or one of the ones where you shut your eyes. But now you walk around the street and we're all in the game together. We all recognize it as a game. 
we know there are rules we know some people break it but we don't kind of really mind we just get it on with a good time nature i think you, you walk past the parks things will be laid out more playfully rigidity and squaredom which is kind of the focus of lots of especially budget area municipality infrastructure is gone now there are shapes there are amusing shapes made out of park benches. Trees are no longer laid out in straight lines, but allowed to grow freely. And so you have a coppice in a, in a city park rather than a rigid barrier of equally heighted oaks. As you walk through, you realize that, that it means that everybody's welcome. So there's, there's no longer the feeling of you and I are separate. Now we might be playing slightly different games, but if we've assumed that play, which, which is what we argue, or I argue at least, that actually life is one big game that we all play different parts in, it means that there's no more them and us. There's just us. We are only one. If you're alive now, we're all the same age, alive at the same time, playing the same game. So there's a gentleness. If someone's getting the rules wrong, is rather than admonishing them straight away, there's a, a gentle, light touch encouragement towards rejoining the game. Because as we know, if, when you play the game by the right rules, actually, it's more fun. And if you do want to change the rules, you do it collectively, exploring new possibilities and scaling back where not. Here's a lovely thing that's changed. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, ties are gone. <laughs> the tie is the rag of the oppressed. They're gone. No more ties. No, but put your tie on, boy. Tighten up. Put up your top button. Top buttons have been removed from all shirts. <laughs> and Parliament. You know, we, 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 I think any, any civilised, developed, progressive, complex social structure needs some sort of, of guidance faculty of, of the wise or the joyful. So now as well as there being a ministry of, you know, agriculture and a ministry of, of education and travel, all of which, by the way, have had serious reform to focus on the experience as well as the prosperity. And prosperity no longer means GDP. Now it means prosperity in its entirety. How does life feel? Does your heart feel good? Are you healthy? Health is no longer a faddish judgment of perceived appearance. It's now the healthier you are, the better you can play the game. So we're all just healthier because we feel better. You know, we all know what it's like. If you're miserable, you eat rubbish. If you feel good, you eat better. And the final thing is, and this is, I think, where we're going to see major change. And for me, I think because I've been working in such, that I've been working on the boot end of a failed, oh, there's a clock going off in the background. I must mean I've talked too long. Maybe it's in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Big Ben is chiming somewhere in the back of my consciousness. That means I must get on. Um, what's really, because I guess we work, you know, we work in the end of the political out, outfall, uh, fallout, sorry, of, of the refugee policy and of migration and asylum policy. So I've got a fairly negative view of centralised politicians at the moment and of, and of the, even the global political network. It's, it's a very unfair and um, an unconscious um, entity. So now there's a new department and that department is a department of decency, joyfulness and experience. And if you want to pass a new law, and we've also gone through all the old ones, it has to pass through there. So you can say, yeah, it was money, but you know what? It won't feel too good. So we're not going to pass that one. And that's it. Because we've got to look at how life feels. And for lots of people, life don't feel so good. And whether you're rich, poor, playful or not, you only get around 80 years. And I think that should be 80 years of happiness and joy and interaction. Beautiful. Thank you, Ash. Thank you so much. Uh, ben? Yeah, that was beautiful, wasn't it? Thanks, Ash. Um, yeah, well, I imagine a society where childhood is recognised as a valuable period of life in its own right, uh, where children are recognised as being playful and, and play is valued as the way in which children express themselves and, and engage in the world around them. Uh, a society that understands that playing is an essential part of, of people's everyday lives, that brings joy, is fun or at least non-serious, 
and makes life more interesting and pleasurable for everyone around. Uh, as a consequence, uh, attention's paid to the quality and quantity of children's opportunities for play, and adults are actively involved in ensuring children have sufficient time and space for play. Social policies emphasise the importance of play in adults who work with children have an in-depth understanding. There are often um, parents about checking in on children, so inevitably adults also become more familiar with one another. I imagine neighbourhoods where after-school residential streets on which families live are places where children can often be found playing, meeting up with neighbourhood friends, messing about, having a laugh, getting bored, quarrelling, falling out as well as making up games and playing tag and hide and seek and riding their bikes and scooters and climbing trees and building tree swings and all of that other good stuff. Adults around are used to that because it happens most days and children have been doing it from a young age so they're well known to adults. The barriers adults have erected around their houses are reducing height. They mingle and feel part of their communities as, as do their children. Communal spaces are available for those living in multi-level housing and these are well kept and well used and importantly fit for purpose. Car drivers, they're aware of children playing out in their neighbourhoods and so drive slowly and carefully, waiting for children to move their bike ramps out of the middle of the road when necessary. The roads and streets are seen as, as common space, serving the needs of everybody, including moving and stationary vehicles. Uh, and as a consequence, the neighbourhood feels safe enough that parents allow their children to start playing out around the ages of four and five, maybe initially on the doorstep and over time, and, and even prior to that, out with their children. And as children and parents get used to this, their freedoms children are granted and the distances they're allowed to roam will increase incrementally so that, you know, by the age of eight and nine, most children are allowed to go off to a local neighbourhood or call for mates or go up to the local shop for bits and bats, ride their bikes to school and pick up their friends and have adventures. Uh, parents might hang a rope swing in a tree on a patch of grass that becomes a bit of a focal point for children as they wander past. But other than that, children make do with what they can bring out from their homes and other stuff. And there's kind of permission and acceptance that that will happen. Equally, it's kind of routine maybe for neighbourhood adults to spot useful playthings on skip runs or waste products from their places of work and they recognise these are valuable resources for the neighbourhood kids and deposit them in appropriate places for them to play with and, and also remove them and tidy things up for them maybe a little bit when those playthings of their usefulness has waned. It's easy to find people to play with because there's a culture of play. There's plenty of spaces to play in in close proximity to children's homes and so playing out is normal and a substantial part of all children's everyday lives. Adults who work, whose work influences children, reposition players central to their considerations when working in support of children. This would mean that children and their way of engaging with the world, what they do and how they do it was central to the thoughts and actions of adults and an approach epitomised by the kind of playwork profession. Satisfaction with opportunities to play becomes a core metric by which we would measure social and community strategies and policies. Adults' collective wisdom in respect of play is substantially improved and integrated across professional and policy domains and their accountability and their responsibility is sufficient enough to take action to maintain, enhance and repair aspects of insufficient opportunities for play. It's society that feels better for children and is better for adults as well. Fabulous. 
Wonderful. Thank you both so much. And uh, I'd like to start by asking if you might both tell us about a moment from your work where you really felt the power of play and when you felt it shift or unlock something really, really powerful. Ben? There's so many, but there was a a really, really little one. I, I, I started my professional life working on adventure playgrounds. And there was a new child on the playground who was really nervous, little girl, really nervous, new to the area. She was clinging on to me. And that sometimes feels nice as a play worker because you feel important, but you also know that the benefit to be gained for this child from their play is by playing with peers, really. So I just sort of, we just sat down and in the sand, we found some sticks and we just started an impromptu game of kind of pickup sticks. You know, we piled the sticks together in a little pile and tried to move them without moving the the ones adjacent to it and then other kids started to be interested in that game and they came and played too and then the little girl was able to explain the rules of the game to these new kids to her and I just sort of slipped into the background and that moment of play broke down barriers and that little girl had four new friends that she then went on and played with and didn't need to cling to my coattails for the remainder of the day and all that happened in probably in about four minutes (laughs) (laughs) it's just a little example of how powerful play can be in terms of relationships i think wonderful thank you ash I mean, there's yeah, there's so many like you guys, I'm sure. But uh, I think the one I'm going to pick out is from our most recent project. So this was in Samos. And we were working in, um, literally, I put a big top up over the road, one road away from the big camp. And we had all of the kids were coming. We'd have 150, 200 kids pouring in most days. The fences were pulled down within about 10 minutes. So we just had this very loosely glued together space. But in the first days, I won't say his name, but there was a little boy who came and he was, you know, they're all quite quite troubled and a lot of them are very traumatized and, and violence is so prevalent in where they're living that it's, it's kind of their knee-jerk response to everything is to be a bit violent and a bit destructive. So we always start with a great big kind of huge fancy magic show that blows them away and then they think we're cool. So we have some kudos for about a week before they realize we're not. But um, we get away with it for a while. And this little guy came and he was really struggling, he had no friends, really aggressive if you say anything to him he spat he called us um the the greek a very rude greek word which is said often and then he found out what it was in english and said that too suggesting certain acts towards my female parent and um and it just went on he was just you know really aggressive and would fight other kids and the mad thing was he was only small and he was fighting any sized kid that came up anyway bit by bit you know we we kind of started making uh, kind of profiles on each kid by which i meant menus of what they like and what they don't so okay he responds better to one-on-one or he prefers better to be in a group he doesn't like female interaction he does male he prefers uh, physical games doesn't like songs and so we start doing this for all of them so to begin with we're just catering for what they've told us they enjoy and then once we have their trust we kind of encourage them to try some other bits too but um just by doing that, he liked one-on-one. We had a guy who was showing little magic tricks, his little disappearing a stone trick. And we just gently, gently, you know, stood by him, went off one-on-one with him when we needed to, played little silly games. And actually, he was a really sweet boy. And after maybe, I'd say, but maybe a week, he started speaking. You know, we hadn't really heard his voice other than to spit out curse words and, in, and insults. He started speaking, then he started joining in, then he led a song. Like three weeks in, he jumped in the middle of the circle and led a song. And then like literally he transformed in, I'd say three weeks. 
into a popular, helpful, happy, kind little kid. And actually, we had a PhD um, student with us who was studying the effects of play in, in crisis zones and war zones. And he interviewed the mum of that, of that little guy. And she was saying he hasn't really spoken to her properly in, in like a year since his dad died on the boat crossing the water because he blamed her for it. And um, he was very kind of unhappy with that. He wasn't going to sleep till late. He was getting up anytime he fancied. So now he puts himself to bed at nine o'clock because so he's like, I have to go to sleep because I've got play in the morning. And he gets up at seven and eats his breakfast, which he wouldn't even eat. He gets up, eats, comes herring down the hill, joins in all of our games, and then goes back. As she said, literally word for word, he repeats everything that's happened, sings me all the songs, shows me all the games. You know, this was a kid that didn't, you know, had every right to have deeply entrenched acting out violent trauma. Just a little bit of play. And by the end, you know, he would guide other kids in play. And when we had new arrivals, he would, you know, support them joining the play space and joining the community. Fabulous. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we, we as, as a culture, we really have sidelined play over quite a long time. It's seen as something a bit embarrassing, a bit silly, uh, not serious enough for what we need. What do we lose as a society that sidelines play? And how do we see the effects of that manifest in the world around us, would you say, Ash? I mean, don't we just lose the quality of life? This is what I don't get. Why is everyone so attached to sincerity and seriousness? The sincere and the serious are so dull. Okay, they're necessary sometimes. Someone's, you know, got an illness. Someone's passed away. You lose your job. Like, there are moments where making a, a joke out of it and, you know, putting a teapot on your head might be the most irritating thing you could possibly do. But in general, isn't like, we've only got this lump of time. We're going to try and do some stuff. We're going to try and have a family if that's your bag. And, you know, you're going to try and live a good life. But what, why do we have to be so attached to, like, you take yourself seriously. All that leads to is the potential that you won't find you're good enough at the end of whatever it is you were you know, valuing yourself against. I don't take myself seriously at all. I take the things I do seriously. You know, I really think carefully and, and work really hard to make the projects right and to, you know, learn gaps where where you don't know, you know, I work with traumatized teenagers. I realized I didn't know anything about them. So I can't go, well, that's okay. Ha ha. We'll just laugh. Like, of course you go and research, but I don't know. Anytime I've taken myself seriously, it, that, that phrase of pride comes before a fall comes in. And ego is pride, isn't it? And it's, yeah, I don't know. We, we, we lose humility. We, we lose compassion. We lose unity. If I have to think I'm special or I'm sincere about my, my position, either positively or negatively, it divides me from others. I'm sincerely down on myself. Cool. Well, I'm probably not going to be open to new friends or I'm sincerely believe I'm amazing. I probably think others around me aren't so much. You know, all of that is just division and, and, and it and leads to isolation, loneliness. And, and I think it leads to a world like we have now where you can have millionaires and billionaires in the same neighborhood as you've got people who can't feed their families twice a day. You know, it leads to that because you feel different and you feel separate rather than realizing we are all you know, as I say, we're, we're one community, we're one creature sharing this moment in time. Mm. Mm. Ben? There's a, there's a chap called Johan Huizinger that many, many years ago wrote a book called Homo Ludens, which is the playful human, in which he kind of argues that play is what has made us the humans we are and that play has a culture-creating capacity. And I think, you know, we know a lot more from em empirical science about the things that would develop naturally without playing and what would. But I think it, it is still arguable that, that we, as a human species, have retained this pretty odd behaviour in terms of 
it being a utility behaviour for any only purpose being to build skills, it really serves to create a kind of virtual environment in which we can try out just about anything in the knowledge that this is play and in play the repercussions of our behaviour aren't as serious as they might be outside. So, you know, it really is arguable that, that play is the thing that makes us human. It's the thing that develops our creativity, our ingenuity, our innovation, because in it we try out stuff that you wouldn't necessarily do under more normative circumstances. And the more normative and structured the circumstances become, the less we will try out. Simon Nichols came up with that theory of loose parts that said in any environment, the ability for innovation and creativity is directly correlational with the variability and adaptability of the environment you're in. The less variable, the less adaptable, the more structured the environment, the more routine and boring and whatever um, our our behavior as human beings come and I think Ashley's kind of right you know we're, we're there's serious concerns and I think there have been for for many decades now really that some of the developments in society whilst not meaning to constrain other good things in society have as a perfect sort of storm of changes served to really constrain some of the simple pleasures everyday freedoms of life and some of the people that have lost out most significantly from those societal developments that have broadly been around economic benefit are children and then the resulting adults lose out so we have this awful um awful insult that we pay to the last generation's children our new adults which is that they're snowflakes and in in, in some way we're saying that they they aren't resilient they can't cope with criticism they're soft they're enable of doing a whole bunch of stuff and arguably that's because that generation of children that maybe sort of were children in the late 80s and 90s are the first generation of children that were subject to really really significant mechanisms of constraint to aid particular types of development and particular types of activity over and above other particularly less desirable activity and I think free play for want of a better word personally directed intrinsically motivated playing is the thing that we really lost out and we're seeing a society that is the result of that and that needs to change. Mm. And if we want to create the conditions in which people feel safe enough to play, what are the conditions that need to be put in place for people to be playful? Where where would you start in creating an atmosphere that feels inviting and welcome for people to play? Maybe we'll start with you, Ash. You do this on a on, on an almost daily basis. I, I think we've we've touched on it a little bit already. I just want to say, just going back to that last point that um that Ben, I think you made it perfectly, and it, and, it, and it is around innovation. And, it, and it's, I'm, I'm saying it because it ties into what I'm about to say, which is we have to remove the known fact that what you do is not going to be considered good enough based on this kind of pillar of perfection that we're all supposed to work towards. And I think, like you say, like, you know, social media and stuff, whether meaningfully or not, has created that. And I think that that resilience we're talking about or that in a generation who finds themselves feeling sensitive, that that all comes into this, too, because they have this kind of avatarial culture where you create a perfect vision of who you are on a self-objectified social media platform, which you take very seriously. And so that does mean, you know, if you don't get enough likes or you don't get enough shares or you're not on this or you can get trolled and all that weird stuff that used to happen just in a play space outside our houses or in the playground at school. 
And, and so it, it comes down to, I think, removing the threat of if you get it wrong, that being a problem. So with our, with our work in the camps, you know, one of the first things we do, we're playing games they don't know. We don't share um, childhood games. We learn theirs after a while and they learn ours. We don't have them in our bones in the same way that we would if we're working in the UK. So the, the first thing we even have to do is, is establish a circle. And every bit of it can be a game. So even going into a circle is a game. We get into the game and I swap people over. We call it ninja swap. And actually, it's just a way of jumbling up the crowd because in the camps, all the, you know, wherever they're from nationally, they, they normally stand in those groups. Boys stand with boys, girls stand with girls. And it's kind of fairly kind of categorized space. So even that is a game from the beginning. And the first hour is getting in a circle, ninja swap, where I say, you number one, you number one, me one, two, three, ninja swap. And they just have to run across the circle and swap places. I go, wait, one, two, three, go. And then I'll go like, oh, one, easy peasy lemon, squeezy, three swap. And then we get like three couples swapping, then five, then 10. And it's like, there's actually no way you can go wrong because it's a really simple game. But even if you do, it doesn't matter. We kind of laugh it off, you know, and, and they expect, I think it's kind of in a weird way, easier for us because they don't know the game. So when they get it wrong, none of their other mates think, oh, you, you know, you idiot, because none of them know what on earth we're talking about. We don't have shared language. They don't have shared language and we're playing a, a new and, pe and peculiar game. But it's actually from that has formed my understanding that absolute simplicity, absolute, you know, gentle, simple, energized games from the moment, as you say, like, you know, Ben said earlier about going out to play in the street as early as four and five. Amen. Like, absolutely. Four and five in a safe world, you're more than able to start mimicking and copying and playing with slightly older kids. And you, you learn your confidence and you learn your strengths and accept your weaknesses but in a very simple and very safe space. And, and that leads to that being the case, you know, scrolling on into adulthood, you know, even from testing, you know, you look at, I think it's Denmark, I'm sure I'll be correct, but I think it's Denmark that doesn't test kids until they're like 14 in school. This idea that when you're seven, you can have a standard assessment test. I mean, the, it's in, in itself, it's the, it's the least playful, most ignorant of childhood development way of, of establishing academic needs. And it's rather than saying, what level are you at? How good are you? rather than going, what more support do you need in order to feel good? Whereas in play, we're just working out what do we need just to feel good? We're not worried about how good are you? You're seven, you should be able to play Duck, Duck, Goose by now. Why can't you play Duck, Duck, Goose? You're seven. You know, it's preposterous, but that's what we do in school. And if it was that more playful, like writing should be fun. I, I was deaf partly when I was born. So, and I didn't, but they didn't realize till I was about two because I had like enough hearing to hear a loud clap, but not to hear anything else. So I spent a lot of my time, kind of three, four, five, and six, in um, speech therapy. And my speech therapist was amazing. It was all games. There's an apple, and a worm was inside the apple. And the longer you spoke for, the further out the worm would come. And he had like a thumb sticking up and a big grin. And so you'd say like, super smelly sausages sizzling in a pan. And the worm would come all the way out. It was just playful. So I enjoyed learning to speak. I found school very playful, probably because of that early perspective. But it meant that, like, you know, I've, I've thrived in the area that I was weakest at, which was speaking and communications, and now make my living doing that. So, yeah, I think, again, it's, it's a really obvious thing, just focusing on experience rather than output all the way through. And that should be for life, too. You don't die wishing you'd, you know, got that promotion or got more money. You die wishing you'd had a better time and played a bit more and seen your mates a bit more.
Mm-hmm. And Ben, if we scale that out to the size of a a city, for example, if if cities recognise or are inspired by what the the visions that you've both set out in at the, at the beginning in terms of a future where play is everywhere and encouraged and runs through our culture, how do you what 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 would be deliberate city strategies for play? How would you create a, a play strategy for a whole city, and what would that look like? Well, I mean that's that's sort of what we what we do all the time, really. Um, so the, I think the first issue with that is to buy into the principle of place efficiency. Now that's kind of uh, mentioned in the general comment seventeen, which is kind of a reaffirmation and description of Article Thirty One, the child's right to play. And I think if you buy in, it's like I said in the in the last bit of my sort of ten minutes right at the beginning that if we buy into play being one of the major metrics we use to measure how successful our social and community policies and strategies are, rather than it being a secondary of active travel or a secondary of low traffic neighbourhoods. We actually commit to saying children have the right to play. Play is really important to childhoods and as a result to the sort of developmental trajectory of those children as they become adults. We would start researching what children's experience of their opportunities are. In researching what children's experience of their play opportunities are, we would start to generate really intensive examples for ourselves, some of which would be examples of children that already rate satisfaction with their play. And we can start to look at the conditions that prevail and are working there for those children. The more research we do, the the more those intensive examples become extensive and extend to other places that are similar to the places we've done research in, but we might not have yet done research. So we kind of go, well, these things were the things that were working for these children in this neighbourhood. This other neighbourhood is very similar. Perhaps those same things will work there. Now, we've done this this kind of research, particularly in Wrexham, where, where both Mike and I started with place efficiency. And over about, about two years ago, we've done nine years. And by the end of those that nine-year period, there'd been just marked changes, just little things like lighting on the way to the park. Instead of spending £70,000 on a park on the edge of the estate, we actually spent £20,000 on some lighting that enabled children to use the park that was already there. So I think when you start with the principle of doing research with children about their their lived experiences of play, that starts to tell you the changes that you can make. Another example that might bring that to life is, you know, the 15-minute city, the campsite. The same people that will not let their children play outside of their view of their handholding, of their helicopter parenting, will go to a campsite and within minutes will have completely lost their children. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be in a strange tent next door being fed. Um, (laughs) They'll have found a bunch of kids and all be off in an unknown place on their bikes, hiding in a bush somewhere, doing something. So it does look like there is something about creating communities of, of a, a size that supports people to relax because the same people that are very uptight about society become much more relaxed when society is a, is a smaller thing. So I think we've got to think about the shape and uh, the shape and extent of neighbourhoods and, and I think that would make a huge change. Mm. So in 2020, would you say that play is political yeah yeah it's always been political because if you, if you look at how 
we decide what play is useful and what play isn't useful that in itself is a is a political act identifying uh, productive and purposeful play as useful to early years children's development is a political act it's part of an education strategy deciding that some play can go on here but play that goes on somewhere else is antisocial behavior is a part of a social justice strategy so yeah play is political ash I'd entirely agree. Yeah, plays political. I mean, I'm sure that again, I mean, you guys have seen it pop up, but all of a sudden, we had a a period of time where we had a bit of funding in England, and it was through the Fit for Life or something, Change for Life, something where they were suddenly it was you know a government that were trying to look like they cared about health and whatever. And I'm not saying like I don't believe that governments do or don't care. I think that's too too black and white a thing to say. But it's funny how certain campaigns will suddenly pump loads of money really, really visibly into a, into a play provision effectively. And they'll tie it to things like, you know, a health push or whatever. But at the same time, knowingly across thousands of neighbourhoods that aren't relevant or whatever across the UK, that, 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 that play is either underfunded or not funded at all. And then in the wider world, you know, it's, it's in the UN Convention of the Rights of a Child. And we work in, in camps that are often run or set up by the UN funded by the EU Parliament and, and including, you know, up until soon, the, the UK. And, that, and that's enshrined in their own rights. And I've even presented it to them and said, this is, this is your Bill of Rights. This is the rights of a child to play. And that is play in a structured and environment safe and appropriate for their age, allowing expression of personality and recreation, all those words. I'm offering to do it for free. And this is our back catalogue. And even then, you know, it's only when you really force it that kind of people go, oh, they kind of almost, oh, fine, we have to let them. Whereas if it wasn't politically relevant one way or the other, if, if it was just accepted that play was a fundamental uh, necessity as well as a right. And necessity, I think having a right is one thing, but making it like just done, we just, we just accept that play is an, is, a, is an essential fundamental necessity of childhood then I think we'd see it everywhere. We wouldn't have to be fighting for 20,000 for street lighting to go to a park. It would be assumed that a park would be lit do you know what I mean? The idea that there can be a part that isn't means it's a trophy display rather than a thought-out play provision. That's what I feel. I feel a lot of the time this stuff is just a bit of a kind of waving flag to look good, but it's been poorly thought out or not properly delivered. And especially in the camps, man, like you show up and there's, I'm not going to name the names, but even some of the bigger organisations, you think, oh, there's a, they call them Blue Dots or Child Friendly Space, CFS. They go, oh, yes, we've got a CFS. And you go and I could guarantee you nine out of ten times it's a little plastic marquee with two hula hoops some old coloring pictures and half a bunch of broken crayons and one nice volunteer who came along no one knew what to do with but because she was nice they said you can do the kid stuff and that's it that's the play provision in most camps unless there's an organization outside of centralized provision that have pushed their way in like us or some of the other clown crews or or some of the other play groups so yeah whether it's political or not it's definitely politically controlled and it's definitely not politically promoted or delivered in a way that is sufficient or at times even adequate. Mm. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, but I'm, I'm looking at the clock and thinking I'm going to ask you a last question for this part, which is if people are listening to this and thinking that they would like to be more playful, to bring more play into their lives, into the organisations they work with, into the communities they're part of, where would you start? What one piece of advice would you give them for, for, for bringing, for making the life, their life and the lives around them more playful? Yeah, getting, getting out 
getting out and and just starting i think ash ash touched on it it's, it's the experience just be brave go for a walk free up some time and just give it to being playful whether it's just doing lego don't do lego because you're compelled to do it don't do lego because you're fitting it in to distract from something else that's going on just do lego just get that big box from the supermarket in the back of the car and bring it home and make a den and use the sheets from the house if from the bed if you can't get outside and just remember people have a emotional uh, physical biological and logical response to the experience that very often really switches them on to going oh god that's been missing hasn't it let's do a bit more of that so i would just say start (laughs) whether it's a game of cards whether it's building a den inside whether it's going out and letting the kids run loose a little bit um and running loose with them i would just start and and often when you do that and then when you do that with a mate you just start to build a little culture of it happening and quite quickly things change as is the case with the playing out brigade that do the the street play you know it's 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 a really easy transition to make once people actually start to have experience because their their response to that is always incredibly positive ash um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give answer one and answer one part B because uh, there's two bits. The first one, which I guess, yeah, I, I guess leads on kind of from what Ben was saying, but I'd say fake it till you make it. Because the thing, I mean, I work a lot across the festivals. We do a load of like, I don't know, 30 festival shows in the summer and we call ourselves a family show. And they go, oh, is it for kids? It goes for all of you. We say pram to nam. And the adults sit there. And I think the thing I notice most, and this is not always true, some grown-ups just want to sit down, have a coffee. They stayed up late at a festival. Fair enough. But you know what? If you've got kids, as you said, it's it's kind of tough luck for at least a a bit of the day. So we see and we try and get them all engaged. And we we do um, the the compendium of forgotten games where we play like, I get the grown-ups to come up and tell us their favourite game from childhood. And we do this kind of pseudo journey back into the past. And they say, oh, British Bulldog. And we go, yeah, we'll play British. And then they, they teach the kids how to play it. And we all play together. And the parents who are sitting on the benches are then find themselves inside a roped off area. They didn't even see us put the rope out, which means I kind of peer pressure them <laughs> into playing. And I go, if you're inside the rope, you play me one game. If you play properly, I'll let you go and sit down. But my point being is that I think it's embarrassment. They just don't quite feel it straight away and they feel a bit awkward because we didn't grow up being adults that you know, necessarily meant to play and our parents weren't particularly silly, all of us. So it's kind of that. You've got to fake it till you make it. It's okay to look silly. In fact, if you don't feel silly, you're probably not doing it right. You know, you, you're meant to feel a bit giggly and daft. And this applies to the workplace too, but more so in part two. Uh, part B, A, the second bit. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot which system I was using. C, part C. B2, Article 14, second <laughs> part, um, is if you don't know how to play, if you're lucky enough to be a parent, ask your kids. If you're not sure, like, as I say, like, exactly as Ben said, make it sacred. Say, I'm going to play from midday until two o'clock on Saturday. Turn your phone off, put it in another room, turn it off. Don't let anyone come round. Tell everyone I'm not available. If someone says, oh, okay, can I give you a phone call Saturday? Say, I'm not available between 12 and 2. I've got something important to do. And make it important. And then sit down and say, kids, I've forgotten how to play. Can you teach me? Just say that. And they will know. They will know a million ways to engage you. And you just say yes. And you go for it. And you fake it till you make it. And if you can't find joy playing make-believe with your kids for two hours, then, you know, you've got to make some changes anyway so that you can have that connection with them. To roll that into an office, 
why don't you do the same? You work in a boring office and you're in a position where you're you know, able to influence the day's plan or the week's plan. You can say on Thursday, we're going to finish work at three and for two hours, we're going to take it in turns to ask our kids what we can do instead to make us feel sillier or make us feel more playful. And then it's not even on you. It's not that like, oh, I've got an idea. What if we paint each other's faces and you feel embarrassed? You haven't got to do that. You can say, my kids has written down the rules and what we've got to do for two hours. And just ask the kids. They know. You know, there's nothing more preposterous than when you have adults say, no, we need to teach kids to play again. And you think, no, no, you need to make it, you know, the idea that we can teach them is mad. We need to facilitate and create spaces for them too. But they are full of ideas. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine offices full of custard pies up and down the country. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and isn't it just a case that as kids, the thing that you really want most is just for your parent to one of your parents just to get down with you and play on your level? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote it. I, I wrote a book a few years back, and, and my closing statement was, "What your kid really wants is you, and if you offer the full you, it's always enough." Yeah, and that's it. Like we can write for hours all sorts of doctrines, but when that's it. Get down, be yourself, offer your, your complete heart and soul for a couple of hours, and that's play, that's done. Beautiful. Any last thoughts on our question, what if we took play seriously that I haven't asked you the right question for? Anything still to be said? A rebalancing. I think lots of this conversation has come as, as about a sort of rebalancing, really, of the way we approach children and childhood. And, and you started off with a quote from Peter Gray, and Peter Gray also said in the 20th, 21st century, childhood, it's as if childhood has just become a period of resume building. We're so locked into the developmental model, the developmental paradigm, players are utility and therefore anything that doesn't answer a utilitarian outcome is disallowed. And every single thing we should do with a child is about what they're to become next, preparation for the next key stage, preparation for their move up from nursery to school, preparation for this, preparation from that. If we just rebalanced that to recognise that children are both beings and becomings, they need to enjoy the childhood and they need the time the space and the permission to do that they then lead the way with their play mm, wonderful thank you ash it's just what it feels like it matters it matters what life feels like when you get to the end and you're laying on your you know on your deathbed hopefully at the age of 115 and you've had a wonderful time they're laying there like you're just not going to look back and celebrate all the forms you successfully completed or all the times that you did your tax return on time? Like you're just not going to remember that. You're going to look back and the things that you're going to miss and or things that you're going to part painfully from is going to be the joyful, happy, clear moments. Of all the time of my childhood, you know, I pick out few memories. They're all the playful ones. You know, my godfather, Jeff, let me time in a knot and he laid on the grass in the front of a garden for ages. And my mum was going, Jeff, come in. He was going, I can't. Ash just time in a knot. And it was brilliant. It's like, I don't know, I must have been six, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. Can't remember much else, you know, can't remember the boring stuff. So it's it's just that there is there is value, immeasurable and unparalleled value in having a good time. And if, if you're not having a good time or if society doesn't encourage a good time, but instead encourages, you know, sincere, severe work, GDP, growth, money, investment, property, then we're just missing the point. We're missing the magic and the opportunity to have such a such a dynamic experience as being alive is. Wonderful. Well, thank you both. Thank you both so much for joining me here today. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you coming us.
So my thanks to everybody for listening and to Ben Adicott for sound and for our beautiful theme music. And we'll see you next time.